Hi, everybody. So glad to be joining you at Liberty Amsterdam this Sunday. Uh, if you're new to the church, my name is Joel. Um, I've been a part of Liberty since it began um, those years ago, and it's been a joy to, from a slight distance, watch your story and take part in it. I wish I was with you physically. I haven't been able to be uh, with you in person now, obviously, for months, but it's good to be sharing, nevertheless, in the the Word of God with you today. So we're in the book of Matthew today. I'm going to be looking at a story from Matthew chapter 15 that describes an interaction between Jesus and a particular woman in particular need. Uh, she's uh, not a Jewish woman. She's a Canaanite woman. She's not from amongst the Hebrews. She's from a different tribal ethnic background altogether, but living in the kind of area. And we get to see how Jesus behaves with this lady uh, and it's it's fascinating it's it's educating and i hope in all of our hearts it will be edifying i hope it will build us up so let's see what it says matthew chapter 15 verse 21 jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of tyre and sidon and behold a canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying have mercy on me, O son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This shows us uh, a less safe version of Jesus than we might be used to. It's not Jesus wearing a cardigan and, and being nice and comfortable and 21st century and kind of pleasant. This triggers us, doesn't it? Because it's not only slightly robust the way he talks to this lady, ignoring her and then referring to her as kind of like a dog in, in his reply. But it, it at least comes across like a possible racial slur. It seems like Jesus is, is actually being derogatory towards her as not belonging to the right tribe. She's not from the, amongst the Hebrews. So she's, she gets serious reason for feeling <laughs> abused by, by Jesus, of all people. Isn't Jesus meant to be gentle? Isn't Jesus meant to be kind and, and generous? And when we hit points in our Bibles where we are tempted to take offence with Jesus, we should pause because trigger moments are educating moments. There's going to be a reason for this. It's a learning opportunity. We shouldn't rush past it. We should consider what's going on here. Why does this offend me so much? Why does this, why does this shock and surprise me? I hope it does. I hope it shocks and surprises because it seems out of keeping with Jesus' style. And if we think that, we'll be right. If you look at the Gospel of Matthew alone, 
You'll notice as you go through the stories, story after story after story, Matthew seems to be making a point continually about Jesus' bias in favour of the outsider, the marginalised, the person who would be looked down upon, the person who would be excluded. Jesus is at pains to include. You, you name it, lepers, prostitutes, tax collectors, people who would be seen as uh, just outsiders and excluded, Jesus deliberately makes a, a beeline to them, makes a, a, a deliberate point of including them. And the people who he's most likely to offend, the, most, the people who he's most likely to actually actively exclude are the most elite amongst the Jewish people, the people who stand out for their includedness, they're in, they're in the circle, whereas for Jesus, they're, they're not really in. So ordinarily in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is turning the tables. He's, he is questioning and undermining the assumptions of who should be included and who should be excluded, often even along ethnic racial grounds. He is a great includer, ordinarily. So in this story, we seem to have Jesus acting out of character, and maybe there's a clue there. Maybe the very way he's speaking to her is to make a point about what it is that he's actually come to do. What it is Jesus has come to do, you could say, you could summarize it, as, as Jesus is bringing the purity, the holiness, the wonder, the joy, the privilege of heaven to all peoples. He's come to share with Israel first, but with all people, the goodness of a heavenly father. And, and this is so that all peoples, all nations can be reconciled to God. Jesus has come to achieve that. But the process of doing that is very fraught. It, it, it's, it's been centuries and centuries in the telling. The whole Bible tells a very long story that takes time and takes process for that to be possible. For God and humanity, general humanity, to be reconciled to one another, it is difficult. You could say it's even difficult for God because it's such a terrible uh, division, such a terrible war has been declared between humanity and God. You and me, in our humanity, our history, what we're born into and what we grow up in is enmity, the Bible calls it, enmity with God. We don't often use the word enmity. It just means being enemies, being enemies of God. Humanity and God are enemies. And God has spent history working peace, working a means of peace through his incredible patience and wisdom and kindness and giving of himself, he's made a way for friendship to be restored, for relationship to be fully restored. But it's not simple. Because the problem, the thing that has split us off from God is so serious, it's so sinister, it's so deadly. It's, it's the power of sin. It's something that is so horribly poisonous and it, 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 you know, it makes COVID look incredibly mild in terms of how serious it is. But even COVID has ruined our freedom of relating to one another. Hence the fact that I'm doing this by video and not with you this Sunday. 
when ordinarily I would have been out to Amsterdam a couple of times already this year to, to do a Sunday with you and spend time with some of you in the church. We can't. Why? Because of COVID. I take my kids to see my parents and I say to them in the car, you cannot hug grandma and granddad today. Why? Because we hate grandma and granddad and we would rather you didn't go near them. And we especially don't want you to touch them because they're disgusting and degraded. No, because we love grandma and granddad. Because we love them so much, we're having to be very careful not to, to mingle uh, so as to trans, transmit uh, harmful viral uh, infections. It's, it's very much like that in the Bible. The, the, the coming together of God and humanity is dangerous because of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of the human heart. They can't just, just kind of come together in some nice, uh, uh, thoughtless way, without any plan, without any process, without any uh, way of dealing with the infection. And what happened was God instituted a means of dealing with the infection. And he started it with one nation, the nation of Israel. Just one nation. They had a, a system of cleansing, just like we have with masks and, and social distancing. They had a kind of socially distanced way of approaching God. It involved a tabernacle and a temple. It involved cleansing. It involved sacrifice of animals. It was very, very specific. It was very careful because when you're dealing with the holy God, it's dangerous. And so there was this special people that were separate because they had this privilege. Problem is, by this time in the story, their privilege is what they are aware of more than they're aware of the generosity of the God who has welcomed them in by sheer kindness. They have become more aware of how they are superior and aloof from the other nations, the non-Jewish nations, and Jesus comes into this situation to say the actual problem now is not primarily about how the Gentile nations, the non-Jewish nations, don't have the same rituals to get them into the presence of God. The problem is going to be that you people or, or any people who have a high sort of dosage of religion are going to be in danger of putting their trust more in religion, in outward um, sort of systems of cleaning, uh, outward modes of religion, outward kind of rituals and systems. You're going to put your trust in that primarily. You're going to think that because you grew up in the right family, because you belong to the right people, you, you don't really need mercy. You don't really need God because, well, you've arrived. You've forgotten that at the very heart of your relationship to God has always been this desperate dependence on him, this terrible need for mercy. And this kindness of God in providing a way of mercy through sacrifice. You've forgotten how desperately indebted to God you are. You've forgotten his mercy. And you've made it all about your religious high profile. And so Jesus comes in saying, actually, the ones you've excluded that the tax collectors and prostitutes, the Gentiles, they're the ones that are going to be coming in on the secret. They're going to be welcomed in. In fact, Jesus specifically says this. It's interesting that when he talks to this woman, he talks about the scraps at the table and the dogs not getting the food at the table. And she says, yeah, but the, the dogs get the crumbs. Look at the way Jesus talks when a Roman soldier comes to him and says very respectfully and reverently, if you're willing, you can heal my servant. 
It's a Roman soldier. He's not just a Roman. He's a Roman soldier. He could not be more enemy. He's completely the enemy of God's people. And yet, what does Jesus say when he's going to heal this Roman soldier's servant? He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is saying, I tell you, the insiders are about to be the outsiders. The outsiders are about to be the insiders. That's coming. That's coming. Why? Because the thing that God has always insisted upon is not primarily about how well you look at your religious observance and how holy you look to yourself and to the world around you, but how much you are completely dependent upon and trusting in the mercy of God. Have you seen your need for mercy? Have you seen his generous, kind mercy? If you're trusting in him and not yourself, that's called faith. If you're trusting in yourself, that's not faith. That's unbelief. That's trusting in the wrong thing altogether. We need to learn how to cultivate faith. Because when Jesus commends this woman, just like the Roman soldier, he commends her for her faith. Did you notice that? You have great faith, he says. You have great faith. I can imagine him just saying it in front of all these Jewish people at the time. Look, you, have, you she has great faith. This is what the Father's looking for. He's looking for faith. He's looking for someone who is humbly trusting in the goodness and in the promises of God and building her life upon it. Whereas you guys, you're trusting in yourself, you're trusting in your own achievements, trusting in your own impressiveness or, or anything other than God and his faithfulness. So, so we have here a, a model of faith and I want to draw out very quickly before we finish some, some qualities of her faith that stand out in the passage for our instruction. These, these stories are in the Bible so me and you can can stop and learn. Remember what we said, it's, the, the triggering stories are especially there to get our attention. Jesus is saying something upsetting to her to get us thinking about how much of an outsider she is, but how much actually she is more of an insider than we might be. So let's look at how her faith is shown. First of all, it's shown in humility. She's humble. She is humble. She's not really all that impressed with herself. She's not really all that full of herself. Have you noticed that? She, she, she comes kneeling. She comes, she comes making herself vulnerable. She comes making a fool of herself. She's calling out. She's crying out. The disciples get irritated with her. But she doesn't, she doesn't really seem to be bothered. She doesn't seem to mind. She's not standing on her dignity. She comes kneeling. She keeps, keeps coming. Even though she's been ignored and insulted, She's humble through it. And that, that's shown even in the way that she asks for mercy. She doesn't ask for what she's owed. She doesn't ask what she's entitled to. She doesn't ask for her rights. She's not particularly aware of her rights. Now, we, we 21st century people, we generally, we've been raised in the West on a, a kind of secular gospel of rights. We, we have been told from infancy, some of us, what our rights are. And we're quite good at knowing what our rights are. And we come even into our relationship to God, standing sometimes on our rights. 
This is what I deserve. This is what I'm entitled to. You should give me what I deserve. This is what I've done. You should, you should, you, des- you owe this to me. Any time in our life when we start talking to God as though he owes us something, we need to be very careful. Because what God actually owes the human race, I don't even want to talk about it. When you think about what's inside our heart, what, what, what one day will have to be punished, when, when we consider the justice and the perfection of God against this kind of sewage within the human heart, why on earth would we ever go to God standing on our rights? It's a, it's a foolish place to start. Do not talk to God like that. Talk to him about his mercy. That's what she does. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. You know, they, they say that Napoleon Bonaparte was about to execute a, a soldier for some court-martial offence uh, in his army. And the mother of the soldier stepped in and as a plaintiff she she says to Napoleon have mercy on my son and he says to her why should I have mercy on him why does he deserve mercy and she said to him he doesn't deserve mercy if he deserved it it wouldn't be mercy that's why I'm asking you for mercy and he actually let her son go free because she made the right kind of appeal I suppose she understood that she didn't have a leg to stand on she was calling for mercy and friends we have to come to the point of understanding that our relationship to God is only possible because of his sheer mercy that might sound scary but when you consider that the Bible says he is rich in mercy well it gives us a lot of hope but we start there we start humbly basing our appeal on his mercy not on what we have to claim. The second thing about her, her, her humility, I notice, is how she, she doesn't stand up on her having been offended. And she is offended. Jesus ignores her. Jesus speaks to her strongly. And notice that even the, the disciples are rude to her. The disciples say to Jesus, can you send this woman away? Did you see that? The disciples are just tired of her. Just send this woman away. She's making a racket. She's, she's, in, she's a pain. She keeps hanging around afterwards and yelling at us. Just send her away. I wonder how many of us have felt tempted to give up in faith because we've been offended. Not just offended by God, but offended by his people. It's the disciples. It's those Christians. It's those Jesus people. It's that church I went to. I've been to a church. They offended me. They, were, they weren't kind to me. They excluded me. They were rude to me. If that's what Jesus is about, I don't want to know. She had ample reason to be deeply offended by the disciples of Jesus, but she still came back. She still persisted. Faith does that. Faith remains humble. Faith is not aloof. Faith doesn't take offence so easily. Faith overcomes offence and says, I still know there's something in this Jesus that I want. I want him. In spite of how badly I've been treated, I want him. Many of us in our Christian life will have to go through that barrier, that pain barrier, of accepting that, yeah, I've actually been offended. You may have cause to be offended. You may be deeply upset by something that Christians or a church have done to you. Let me ask you, please do not make that offendedness the final authority. Don't let that thing be the God of the situation. There's only one God. He's revealed in Jesus Christ. Come to him. Don't let your offence be God. And if the church has something to say sorry to you for, well, maybe that can come. Eventually that can come, but don't let that rob you of the chance to trust 
and pursue God in faith. Let me just look at the second part of her faith, her persistence. I mean, that's obvious. She doesn't give up. <laughs> she won't give up when, when she's ignored, when she's rebuked by the disciples, when, when Jesus argues her back, pushes her back, she keeps coming back. She comes back twice. She is persistent. And there's something about faith that needs to be mixed with patience for it to be rewarded. Hebrews chapter 6 talks about that. Faith and patience inherits the promises. When you trust God at first, when you first put your faith in him, it's a wonderful thing. What you'll find is that real fruitful faith will often mean persisting in it and asking and praying and, and seeking. Jesus talked about this. Ask, seek, knock. In, in fact, the, the, the way he said it was with more kind of intense ongoing verbs. Be asking, be seeking, be knocking. Be that kind of person that keeps persisting, doesn't give up. Men are always to pray, he said, and not give up. Men are always to pray, men and women, always to pray and not give up. Why did he say that? Because we do. Because we do. We find it so, so hard to persist sometimes. And yet faith will persist through those seasons when nothing much seems to be happening. You know that Jesus is inviting argument from this woman. He's not put off by the fact she argues. He's not offended by her pointing out the, the possible loopholes in his argument. She's not, he's not offended by her questioning, saying, Lord, what, what about this? Why not this? Why not this? Why not this? Please, please, please. She keeps coming back. And maybe we imagine that God would find that a grievance, that God would be, be cross, irritated. Maybe that's because that's what we're like. You know, I've got kids and <laughs> I, I, I barely like preaching this. I, you know, don't, don't tell them I said this, but God rewards people who keep arguing with him. <laughs> I've got kids who keep arguing with me and I have to say to them, enough, no more arguing, I'm your dad. Just occasionally, you know, you have to sort of say, okay, stop, 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 stop. It's weird. I, I, I know that I have to do that. To, sometimes that means me being a good father. I find that my father in heaven, he doesn't say that so often to me. <laughs> he doesn't seem to say to me, stop praying, stop asking, stop asking. Maybe that's because I don't ask anywhere near as much as my kids ask me for things. I don't know. I, he's, he's much harder to annoy. He's much harder to irritate. In fact, he seems to invite it. Keep asking. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, keep banging the door, keep going at me, keep going at me. Keep it going. God loves that, wants it, it seeks it, looks for it, because what he sees when we do that is that we are taking him seriously. We're persisting, and that's what this lady does. And then finally, this is what I love. We've seen that her faith is shown by her humility, by her persistence, but how does she find the fuel for those things? That takes a lot. To be persistent and to be humble, it requires something. And what it requires is the third part of her faith, which is revelation. Revelation. Her faith is fueled by what God has revealed to her about his son Jesus. She has seen something. She's seen actually more than the people of Israel had seen about Jesus. She says to him, son of David. She says, Lord, that's a strong word. Lord, have mercy. She's not saying sir. She's not saying, uh, uh, you know, she's not, it's not a term of, of uh, respect so much. It's, it's got more to it than that. The, the, 
<coughs> Even the fact she says, Lord, have mercy. You know, that the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament would, would have that word Lord for places where God, the Lord of Israel, is referred to. She's speaking of him as divine, and she's saying, have mercy. She's thinking maybe of the places in the Old Testament, like Exodus 34, where God is described in all of his beautiful character. The Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, merciful and compassionate. She's saying, I know who you are. The Lord, the Lord, the merciful one, slow to anger. She's seen who he is. You're not an ordinary man. You're not just another rabbi. You're not like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. You're not. You're not even like your disciples. You are the Lord. You are the merciful one. You are the one whose mercy is divine. It's not just dribs and drabs. Your mercy is awe-inspiring, awe-inspiring in its overwhelming scale and nature. The mercy of Jesus is staggering. She is overwhelmed. She's seen something about him and she knows he's no ordinary person. She's sure of it. She's sure. So she keeps coming because of who she's seen him to be. The question in the end, friends, ultimately, is not whether we have got what it takes to press it in faith. It's not really about me and you being good at persistent prayer. That's good. It's good to be persistent, I'm sure. It's not ultimately about whether we're humble people in ourselves. Some people are false, false in their humility. No, no, no. The point in the end is, have we seen how good he is, how great he is? Have we seen something in him, something of him that draws faith out of us? We need to understand the promises that are laid up in God, the promises that he gives, the things that he said. That without faith, it's impossible to please him. You must believe that he's there and that he rewards those who seek him. Hebrews 11, verse 6. You've got to believe that he's worth the pursuit. You've got to. No one is going to persist in faith and prayer unless they're convinced that it's worth it. You've got to know that it's worth it. It's worth prayer. It's worth hours of prayer. It's worth Spending the night in prayer, it's worth it. Why? Because he promises to answer us. He promises that he is good. If you seek the Lord, you will find him. And what a thing to find, to find him, the Lord Jesus. And this is massive. I find it staggering because I I find it interesting that she believes this in spite of the evidence, apparently. I mean, Jesus seems to be pushing her away, doesn't he? It's not encouraging. You know, she's thinking of him, maybe, from Exodus 34, abounding in steadfast love. It doesn't seem very abounding. Referring to her, you know, as rudely, rejecting her, resisting her. What, what, what's going on here? You know, sometimes we have to choose to stand in line, to li- walk in line with what we've learned about the mercy and the goodness of God in spite of the disguise he seems to be wearing. See, God will will come to us in disguise. God God will come to us through a difficult situation. God will come to us not just in our answers to prayer, he will come to us in our unanswered prayers. 
He'll come to us in our painful times. He'll come to us in seasons like COVID where you think, what is going on? Why is God doing this to us? He'll come to us in storms and struggles and difficulties and pain. It will be the Lord, the Lord coming to us in it. Why? Because he dislikes us? No, 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 no. He's watching us. He's watching us. He's watching our faith grow. He's, he's helping us to discover that in the end, we trust him. We know him. He's worth it. And we keep pursuing him through the dark, through the wilderness, through the difficulty. And we get to learn the depths of his mercy at those times more than we do at the times when everything is sunny, everything is fluffy and happy and everything is fine. We get to know the real God in the midst of darkness and pain and confusion because we trust in his promise. We come back to what he's really said that he's like and we say, I believe you. You are the merciful Lord. You are. We, we keep believing. We keep pressing on in the faith, faith that he calls us to have in his abounding love. He does disguise himself. You know, we don't know much about what Jesus looked like, but we do know the Bible says he didn't look like much. You know that? Isaiah 53, it says, there was, nothing, there was nothing in his form that was attractive. Isn't that weird? The most beautiful person in eternity shows up disguised as a plain-looking man. Not good-looking, apparently. What's that about? Why would God do that? Why would God show up and not be good-looking? There's a mystery there, surely. He hides himself. He hides himself in tough circumstances. He hides himself in seasons where we think, God's not watching me. I tell you, he's always watching you. It might look like he's looking away, but he has eyes in the back of his head. He's watching. Jesus is watching this woman. He's watching her. He's watching her intently. He's fascinated with her. And right now in your season where it seems like, Jesus, you're just not showing up at the moment. I'm praying, but you're not answering me. I'm struggling, but you don't seem to care. I don't feel your presence. I used to feel it. Now I can't even see you. I can't even be with my church properly. I can't even do worship properly. Everything seems so unattractive. I'm not having my needs met. You don't seem to be involved. You don't seem to be watching. I promise you he is. I promise you. And more importantly, so does this book. He speaks to you today through what I say to you. To say, I've loved you with an everlasting love. I will not leave you nor forsake you. And though it seems as though I mock you and despise you and ignore you, I tell you, all of heaven's eyes are on you. And you can be sure when you see the cross, you see the darkness of Calvary, you see the one hanging, despised on the cross, ignored by heaven, and yet holding on in faith, you can see that God knows the journey. He knows the loneliness. He knows the walk. And we're called to trust him in the midst of it. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to help us to have that same kind of faith that this woman had. But she took your mercy more seriously than the thing you seemed to be saying her at the time. The thing that you seemed to be saying to her at the time was confusing, painful, even insulting. But she took your mercy more seriously. Teach us to do the same. Help us to remember, because of the cross, we can be sure that we're right to see your mercy as the final word. Help us to believe and trust in your mercy through the dark times. In Jesus' name, amen. So good to be with you. Thanks so much for joining us. Bless you.